if we can teach the next generation, this is this this now has uh, a ring to me that that gets me really fired up about how to quiet our minds so that we can be more connected to who we are at our center. That's the whole reason I'm in this game of sport and performance psychology is that I want to help people quiet their minds to learn the skills to do that. That was sports psychologist Michael Gervais, and this is the Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey everyone, my name is Rich Roll. I am your host. Welcome to the 120th episode of the podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing to the show on iTunes. Thank you for subscribing to my email newsletter. Thank you for spreading the word. Thank you for sharing the show on your various social media channels. And thank you for clicking through the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com for all your Amazon purchases especially all those last-minute holiday purchases that I know you guys are making. Come on, doesn't cost you a cent extra, zero additional time investment on your part. It's a win-win across the board. So thank you, everybody who has been supporting us in this way. All right, what's this show about? Well, this show is about deconstructing what is required to live your best life. It's about the tools to enhance your spiritual, mental, emotional, physical, and financial well-being. It's about how to be excellent or how to live more excellent, I should say. So towards that end, each week, you know it's coming, I sit down with the best and the brightest and the most forward-thinking paradigm-busting minds in health and wellness and fitness and sports, nutrition, the arts, and entrepreneurialism to tap these people's experience, knowledge, and insights to help you discover, uncover, unlock, and unleash your best, most authentic self. We all get it. Sometimes the news can really wear you down. That's why Wildcard, a new podcast from NPR, feels like a solution. It's an interview show that gives a special deck of cards to a whole bunch of fascinating guests, all in the hopes of sorting out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential, deep dive, all party game. Wildcard comes out every Thursday from NPR. Listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. We're brought to you today by Brain FM. You know that thing when you have a bunch of intense work that you just have to do, but the mind doesn't really want to do it? You're telling it, come on, focus, but it keeps getting distracted or agitated by nonsense. And you go through this painful sort of mini war to rein it in, to settle it down and just concentrate on the thing. Wouldn't it be great if there was something that would ease or eliminate this process? I don't know, like something you put in your brain through your ears? That would be great. And the good news is that it does exist. It's called Brain.fm, which is this sonic platform that leverages science to create tunes specifically crafted to optimize brain performance for a specific task. Tunes that contain patterns that shift your brain state with something even more effective than binaural beats called neural entrainment so that you can more easily focus on that thing or lure you into the sleep that persistently eludes you. Personally, I notice it the most when I sit down to write. Typically, this experience floods me with anxiety and a near-lethal dose of the big R resistance that Stephen Pressfield talks about. But now, I pop on the headphones, 
I dial up brain.fm, click the focus feature, and the process becomes, I mean, look, writing is still hard, but now it really is so much easier to get into that state of flow and stay there. So if you're ready to unlock your focus and productivity, I've got a special offer just for you. I ask them to give my listeners 30 days free and you can get it at brain.fm slash richroll. I bet you'll love it just as much as I do. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem. A problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life and recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. All right, this week we're back to sports, and at the highest echelons of sport, irrespective of discipline, all the athletes are supremely talented. They all have devoted their lives to being the very best they can be. And they all train incredibly hard, as hard as they possibly can. And increasingly, more and more so, they're all dialing up their nutrition for that extra edge. So all things being even in this regard, what is it that distinguishes the gold medalist from the also-ran? What is it that distinguishes the gold medalist from the also-ran? Is it luck? Is it talent? Is it support? Is it resources? Well, of course, sometimes, or it's any combination of those things. But more often than not, and the thing that we're overlooking too much is that it's the athlete who has the mental and emotional edge that is going to stand atop the podium. The athlete whose head is screwed on properly is emotionally fit, who's grounded, who believes at his or her core that he or she is the very best and can and ultimately will win. That's what carries the day. It's incredibly powerful. We have this idea that some people or athletes, we're talking about athletes this week, but really this applies to anybody, that certain people are just born with a natural, mental, inherent sense of self, I guess you could say, that just 
allows them to simply succeed or win at will, like the world just unfolding at their feet. It's not true. And another false idea we have is that if you don't feel this way, that if you're somebody who's faltering or falling short of your best or your potential or somebody who's simply off in whatever it is that you're pursuing in your life in some respect, and this motivates you to go, quote unquote, see somebody and, quote, talk to somebody, that this means that there must be something wrong with you, inherently wrong with you, that you're flawed goods, so to speak, Right. Of course, this isn't true. And the good news is that this perspective is changing, certainly in the realm of sports. And the sports psychologist is really no longer the last stop on a flailing athlete's career, but is now a crucial and indispensable team member in the success quotient of an athlete or a team looking to take peak performance to that next level. And the guy who's at the top of the heap the go-to guy everyone's talking about right now? Well, that guy is high-performance psychologist, Dr. Michael Gervais. And as luck would have it, he's the guy who's on the podcast this week. How about that, right? So who is this guy? Well, Michael is director of the high-performance psychology arm of DISC, D-I-S-C, which stands for Diagnostic and Interventional Surgical Center. It's a sports and spine center in Marina del Rey. It's an incredible facility. Michael gave me a tour of it. They do amazing things with athletes there, pillar to post, um, really phenomenal work. And Michael is also an integral member of Red Bull's high performance team working with extreme athletes. And, you know, really he works in the trenches of high stakes environments where there is no luxury for mistakes, for hesitation or failure to respond. And with the vision of helping his clients thrive under pressure, Michael has created a performance model, melding state-of-the-art brain mapping techniques with an approach grounded in high-performance psychology. And it's an approach that allows people to achieve their maximum potential, whether on or off the field. And the result is a completely individualized performance plan that allows each person to train by fully engaging both their mind and their brain toward their personal best. And his results are staggering, I have to say. I mean, you might have seen pictures of guys in NFL uniforms sitting in the lotus position meditating. Well, that's Dr. Gervais. You might know him as the guy the Seattle Seahawks coach Pete Carroll credits as integral in their Super Bowl win for the meditation, mindfulness, and other crucial team-building techniques and practices that he helped foster and instill into the fabric of the Seahawks organization and team culture that have paved that team's path towards incredible success. There's a great piece in ESPN Magazine and on ESPN.com on this. I'll, I'll put a link up in the show notes to that. You should definitely check that out. And you might also remember that Felix Baumgartner's now infamous Red Bull Stratos jump from space. Everybody remember that? Uh, what you might not remember, or maybe you will, is that that project was almost completely shelved because Felix could not resolve the high level, level of anxiety and claustrophobia that he would experience every time he put the suit on. And it was Gervais who got Baumgartner and Stratos back on track by getting him comfortable in the suit, by resolving those anxiety and claustrophobic, claustrophobic issues. So no Gervais, no history-making jump. And there's a great piece on this in Outside Magazine, and I'll put a link up to that, to the online version of that article uh, in the show notes on the blog. Um, 
by the way, please read the show notes this week. There are tons of great articles, a great reading list on this subject matter, the work of Dr. Gervais, the Seahawks, the Stratos mission, mindfulness, med- meditation techniques, their applicability in sports and beyond. Lots of good stuff there. So anyway, gold medalists, Olympic athletes like Kerry Walsh and Eric Shanto, swimmers, snowboarders, golfers, basketball players, track and field athletes, the NBA, NFL, NHL, MLB, UFC, the U.S. Olympic team, and again, Red Bull's North American athletes, Dr. Gervais has worked with all of them, including the U.S. military, as well as several collegiate and high school programs. And while his roster includes some of the sports world's most elite This isn't just about high-performance athletes. It's about high-performance life. Because like athletes, all of us are required to perform daily. We all navigate our own high-stakes environments, and we can all benefit just as much with the right training. As Michael says, every day we have the opportunity to create a living masterpiece. Every day we have the opportunity to create a living masterpiece. So how do we do that? What is the secret? And how is human potential best cultivated? The answers might surprise you. Because it's not about motivation. And it's not about winning. It's about the way it feels to be who you are. It's about courage. And it's about exploring what's possible. So sit back. Enjoy my conversation with the sagacious, insightful, and thoughtful Michael Gervais on exploring the boundaries of human potential. I'll catch you on the flip side. I feel like uh, I want to take this opportunity to just make it all about me and have like a personal, private consultation with you about all of my neuroses and that are impeding my performance. Some of that's bound to happen. Yeah, I know. So we're in the offices of DISC, D-I-S-C. What does that stand for? Uh, Diagnostical Interventional Spinal Center. So uh, what goes on here? This is a pretty impressive uh, situation you have. Yeah, it's a group of um, uh, 20 or so folks that pulled their money together to build a state-of-the-art surgical center, um, and then it's an integrative services. So we've got everything from Cairo, soft tissue, acupuncture, acupressure, obviously performance psychology. We've got high-performance brain services. But the, the thing that drives the whole thing is we've got um, spine surgeons and orthosurgeons that are, mm-hmm. you know, really kind of running shop in the surgical center. Mm-hmm. And we have uh, intercom announcements as well to keep us up to speed on what's going on here. Was, right? that, in, was that in this building? I think so. Yeah. It's the first time I've ever heard. Oh, really? Yeah. I hope it's not an emergency. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. yeah. And what's cool is when you walk through the halls here, I mean, there's just pictures and posters all over the wall. It's just a who's who of like great athletes everywhere you look. Like this place is just oozing like performance optimization. Yeah, and that's what we're that's that's what the people that are involved are really interested in. And so when you create that um, common thread of interest, you know, it's just that that's what happens. Right, right, right. So do you actually see athletes in this office here or are you usually on site for that kind of thing? It's a little bit of both. So here what happens here for me is that the way that I'm structured um, is that I've got four clients at any given point in time, mm-hmm. and then I've got projects, um, and, and which is more like intellectual based, you know, development, and then I've got teams that um, I'm fortunate enough to work with. So it's like those three hubs is how mm-hmm. I spend my time. Mm-hmm. So when you say four 
four clients or four athletes, do you, you, you put a cap on it? You only work with four athletes at any given moment? Yeah, that's exactly right. And what I've come to learn is that, um, man, it, it, we got to roll up our sleeves to really do this thing right. And mm-hmm. to really understand the essence of a person, uh, to get in and, and do some work that is transformational for me, I don't, I mean, there's lots of ways to, to work with people, you know, but for me, I like to go all the way in, be completely immersed with that process and then spend some deep, rich quality time. And to do that, it's so engaging that, um, I, I limit it to the n- a number of people and storylines that I can follow with authenticity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. And, you know, authenticity is, is really kind of the touchstone of, of this show and, one of the things that I'm always trying to probe and, and get a grip on is this gap that exists between inspiration and action, right? Because I feel yeah. like inspiration is really easy. It's, you, can, you can inspire people almost lazily, like through an Instagram post or something like that. But, but to really truly catalyze action and then from action into sustained lifestyle change, like that's, that's the roll up your sleeves part, right? So, you know, what do you, I mean, it sounds glib, but like if there's a way to kind of articulate, um, you know, what that gap is and how you begin to um, piece together a way to traverse that gap from inspiration to action. I've never heard it quite put that way. So let me talk around how Mm -hmm. I understand it. Um, But you're right. There is a gap between an idea and being able to execute the idea. And then can you sustain that execution at a high level? That's where mm-hmm. my antenna pop up. You know, it's like, is there sustainable, um, excellent performance? And, and sometimes in very hostile environments, you know, that's how for me, I understand mastery is can I do it in quiet moments and then in very, you know, electric or hostile or competitive moments. Mm-hmm. And so um, inspiration for me is about breathing life into something. And most of the people I work with, they, they already have high levels of inspired ways of living, meaning they've got the idea of what they want to um, do or how they want to be, and they're looking to sustain excellent performance wherever they go. Mm-hmm. So what's the gap between the two? It's, you know, I mean, that's kind of the science of psychology, right? Is really understanding who a person is anchored to where they're wanting to take their life. And that's twofold. Uh, who they, how they want to be. And the second part of it is what they want to do. And, you know, it's the balance of those two that I spend time with people. So first get an image of where they're going with their life, who they're becoming and how they want to do the things that are most important to them, their craft, if you will, and, and balance with who they are in this moment. Mm-hmm. And it, it really has to do with it's, I mean, it's an inside out thing, right? Like you have to get to the very core of so, of who somebody is. It's not like come in and I'll evaluate you in a half an hour and I'll give you this laundry list of five things that are going to fix everything, <laughs> you know, like disabuse me of some of the notions uh, that, that people carry around about what it is that you actually do. Oh, that's, that's a good way to ask the question. Uh-huh. So I, um, this is what happens. So if I'm in a public place, one of my like a a party setting or something like that. One of my least favorite initiations of engagement with people is when they ask, or, you know, I've just, I just refuse to box myself into this question when I ask other people, but they, when they ask, so what do you do? Mm -hmm. Oh God. Okay. (laughs) I see where we're going with this, you know? And, um, but if I really get down to like, what is it that I, how I spend my time, I'm really curious 
And I, I'm fascinated by how people pursue their potential and how they pursue a, a life that has meaning and value and they're able to express themselves through a craft. And so I, basically, uh, I'm a curious person. Mm-hmm. I, I, I want to know what better is and I want to understand it through the power of being now. And so that's how I describe it. Like I'm really curious and I've been curious with how the best in the world work for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so I've got this science that I've been able to study about human thinking and behavior and being able to understand it. And um, so I bring this um, conversation between ancient wisdoms and uh, current modern cutting edge science to the conversation about how do the best in the world operate and how do they sustain you know, what's driving them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's just camp out here for a minute on the, on this idea of mindfulness and, and presence. I mean, you know, mindfulness, meditation, these are, you know, concepts ages old, but they're very much having a zeitgeist moment right now. Like there yeah. is a, a resurgence of interest in, uh, in these ideas and their application across the board, whether it's in the workforce or in the home or in the context of what you specialize in, which is which is human performance in the athletic context. Um, so that must be nice for you. That it's being received in a way that, you know, a few years ago, even it wasn't. Yeah, it, I think it, for me, it caught me by surprise that so many people are actually interested in this. And uh, I'd like to unwind kind of how it happened for me, but... Mm-hmm. It makes sense right now. We are we are in an off-terrain way of living. There's not a very clear roadmap um, for people in the business sense, uh, in the family sense. Like our dynamics for living are changing, um, and they're unfolding uh, rapidly. You know, it was 30 years ago. Our 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 I don't know how old you are, but my folks like mm-hmm. they you know there was this idea that you just kind of get connected to a industry or a career path and you stay that thing with either corporation or entrepreneur venture. But now I don't, I don't know what the average is, but I know people are changing rapidly their career paths, you know? And so I'm, I'm getting a little away from the central idea I want to share is that um, what I think is taking place is that we're moving so fast. We've got technology pulling on us. We've got, um, there's no roadmap for how to live a, a, an amazing life, but the ancient wisdoms, that's what they solved. That's what they were really about, whether mm-hmm. it's, you know, Jesus or Buddha or Confucio or Muhammad or, you know, the, the ancient traditions, the Stoics, if you will. Um, that's what they were trying to solve. Like, what is the good life? What is the way of living? And uh, so there's something really important about anchoring to that part of the wisdom that's been carried down through, you know, uh, as we've huddled around fires for thousands of years there's something that's still pure about that that's important for us to anchor to. And one of those tenets, one of them, is you know, living presently and being here now. And it mm-hmm. sounds glib to use your word you know, because it's thrown around so much now, but there's so much power in being able to have a stillness about yourself in this present moment. And what I'm fascinated with is accessing uh, at a very highly refined way a craft, Mm-hmm. Can you be still in this moment and access something that you've literally trained, you know, for 10, 20, 20 years to refine? Right, right. I mean, it's it's this convergence of the acceleration of technology and kind of, you know, economic spirals that have 
cast aside the kind of security that comes with a long-term career and this kind of freelance, you know, generation that's growing up. And it's all happening. There it is again, another announcement. <laughs> it, it's all happening. Oh, oh know, is that you your that computer? Is? What is it? Yeah. Um, it's like the, oh gosh, what's it called? It was my... <laughs> is it your computer? The, yeah, my computer was... <laughs> let me go turn that it's off. It's all right. Yeah, we'll just turn the music down. No problem. All right, you never and know. And we're back. <laughs> cool. Um, yeah, I think it's happening so quickly that it's it's happening far too quickly for our kind of DNA to acclimate, right? And I think it's creating a lot of confusion and depression and questioning of you know wh- what how should I be using my time, you know? And and yeah, and and where are the answers to these questions? Well, it's happening so quickly that you know the current sort of people that are writing books can't even keep up with it. So we go back to the ancients, yeah, right? It's pretty nice. And it's, it's nice that it still rings true. And, I, you know, I love this idea of the merging um, of those concepts into this field of, of performance, like how, how to access those states uh, and, and leverage them to be better in whatever your particular field is, whether yeah, it's as an right. athlete or an executive or what have you. And the thing that I've, I've, it's very clear to me right now is that we take our minds everywhere we go <laughs> and whether it's in business or unfortunately, in, yeah, right. And so, <laughs> you know, if we can study how our mind works and have some clarity about that, we take it everywhere we go. Every one of us goes into um, a boardroom at some point, you know, or business setting at some point, every one of us goes into a, a coffee shop or a restaurant or a living room or in a bedroom and we also go into, a, some of us go into, you know, highly competitive business or, or sporting environments. And we, if we can really understand how our mind works, uh, there's a sense of freedom that can be unlocked. So what that means is that while I've spent my time in the trenches with some of the un, most unbelievable athletes, uh, you know, from Olympic to action sports to, you know, I'd love to share some stories there. But, but the, what we can learn from them is how to be still. Mm-hmm. We can learn that from them because some athletes uh, will nod their head to this, not some, but many will nod their head to this, that there's an aliveness that comes together when they get completely absorbed in the present moment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's the flow state or zone or whatever people might call it, no mind, the ancient wisdoms talked about. Um, and so, you know, if we can understand how to prime our environments for that and unlock um, that state of being more frequently, that's, that's part of the good life now. Yeah, yeah, of it's course. Part, part of it. Of course. Uh, and, and, and being able to access it at will and live in it and not have it be a fleeting happenstance. You know, I mean, great athletic performances, great artistic performances, great musical performances. You know, these are all things that, that these people will tell you when they occur, they don't know how they occur. They just come because they're in this state of presence, this state of no mind. And I, and I remember it being a revelation to me when I first really got the idea that I am not my thinking mind, that the idle chatter and the looping and the sort of repeated messages that are, you know, constantly kind of firing in my head are actually distinct from who I am as a person or my higher state of consciousness. And, and the journey towards trying to develop some level of, of mastery over that idle chatter and being able to be present enough to not be impulsed or reactive to it, but to be able to consciously choose whether I'm going to engage in those thoughts or not 
is incredibly powerful. You've been doing some work. Well, yeah. it's been a long road, my <laughs> <Yeah>. man. <laughs> You've been doing some work. I'm not always in, in, you know, not always in the driver's seat on it, but I have my moments. That's so cool. Yeah. So that rings true for me. What you just mm-hmm. described, you know, it, it speaks such to the center of what I'm trying to do as well, and what people are actually uh, that I'm spending time with trying to understand how to do as mm-hmm. well. And it's almost like this arena of high performance, whether it be sport or arts or business. It's just the captivity of conversation. It's the it's the thread that they've um, spent most of their time doing that allows us to have this unique vibe to talk about. Okay, who are you at your center, mm-hmm. right? Because obviously you're leaning into life. You're already you're you're wanting or feeling inspired about something. You're leaning into life. Let me put a uh, asterisk to that. I want to come back to motivation in a minute. And you know, can can we uh, figure out a way for um, us to achieve? Uh, more, but never lose touch or sight of what it feels like to to have meaning in life and to make a difference and to be able to be fully present mm-hmm. along that journey. Mm-hmm. And and you've talked about you you mentioned kind of meaning uh, earlier, and I'd like to kind of visit that idea of the importance of of meaning and and maybe its cousin, you know, service uh, in terms of overall kind of fulfillment, whether you're an athlete or, or anybody actually having, having that aspect of whatever your mission is um, and how that contributes to kind of overall long-term satisfaction to keep you kind of on mission. Mm, yeah. And I think missions change. I think they mm-hmm. over time, you know, and one of the reasons I tend to hesitate a little bit with interviews is because it's now this interview that we're doing now is going to be locked in time forever as right. it is, as if neither of us have ever grown from the time that this is printed, <laughs> you know? So it's, it, it's like ideas are fluid, you know, uh, growth is fluid. I, I, I'm growing, you know, I'm going to hopefully grow through this conversation. And, you know, I mean, so this idea that there's one mission in life and that's it, I don't resonate completely with it. Um, but there are pockets in time when I've, I'm definitely mission-minded. And I've got a mission now in my life that's very clear, which helps things. Mm-hmm. So I, I just think that there's a, it's important for, if you don't have a mission, it's not really clear, to, to really do some of the lonely work to say, well, what am I doing? How am I going to generate meaning in my life? And that's a pretty clear thing, right? Like, am I making a difference? And am I impacting other people? And and, you know, am, am I living a life that's yeah, true yeah. for me? Like it's, it's very, very three. personal too. Yeah, I mean, meaning so. is a, is very much different from person to person. What's personally meaningful to you and how do you specifically contribute? What are your unique gifts that you can offer that are going to give you that sense of satisfaction? Yeah. And I think it's this, this context of meaning that we're talking about, it's important that we anchor that we're making a different part of being, having a meaningful life is that we're making a difference. Like we're doing something that has, um, some nobility, if you will, to, to helping somebody else or even a generation of people. And that's part of what I've come to learn that when people say, you know, I just, I'm searching for meaning and what is the meaning? Really what they want is they want to make a difference. They want to know they matter mm-hmm. and the relationships that they have are authentic. But I feel like a lot of people, you know, maybe most people, at least in, in, in Western culture are so disconnected mm. from these ideas, you know, and, not that it's anybody's fault. Like we, like we said, we live in this super fast-paced culture. We just got to get through the day and there's kids to feed and the, the boss is yelling at me and what have you. There's no time for that inner space, for that, you know, that, that kind of 
um, emphasis on presence. And because of that, we don't spend a lot of time kind of pondering, you know, the, 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 the greater meaning of our life and, and the trajectory, you know, that would create the most satisfaction and value for our culture. And I think that that creates, that creates a, a, a you know, a, a culture of, of discontent. You know, it's a crisis of conscience that I think is widespread. Yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm, I'm nodding my head to that because I think what happens is we haven't taught I was never taught this in school by the people that are, you know, teaching. And, mm-hmm. You know, in, in American culture, we teach the value of acquiring information. We teach how to learn um, as we get, you know, develop in the academic system. And, and so, but w- I was never taught purposefully how to be present, how to, uh, the life skills, if you will, about, mm-hmm. you know, anchoring into the bigger stuff. That was left for either religion or your parents, or that was left for somewhere else. But we have time to be present, to be connected. We have the time, but we don't have the skill. And so, if we can under unpack that, if it, it's and it's not a long journey now to understand how our minds work. It's not an ever minding or ever winding kind of journey mm-hmm. um, to get enough to understand your own mind. I mean, you you're really clear about how your mind works. Sometimes it's easily distracted. Sometimes you've got conversations that are thoughts that you don't want to have, or sometimes you have thoughts that are right in line with what you're mm-hmm. doing and who mm-hmm. you want to be. And we don't need to water all of our thoughts. So I'm distracted in this kind of muse, if you will, but no, I like that though. Yeah. So if we can, if we can teach the next generation, this is, this, this now has uh, a ring to me that that gets me really fired up about how to quiet our minds so that we can be more connected to who we are at our center. That's the whole reason I'm in this game of sport and performance psychology is that I want to help people quiet their minds to learn the skills to do that. Because when we do that, we touch what's beautiful. We touch mm-hmm. our spiritual experience. And some people call it God, other people call it, you know, uh, other names. And so for me, that's when I'm helping uh, people is when they learn how to be able to qu- be quiet mm-hmm. in their own mind and be here. And I think, I think young people are into it. You oh, know, yeah. that's my experience. They're much more open to it than, than our generation. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, are you kidding? Like if somebody told you in college, you know, I don't know, I don't know what your, what your experience was, but I would have been like, you know, forget that, you know, like I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm show me the, you know, show me the Benjamins. Yeah. Uh, and it's true because it's, it's really the foundation. Like I often think back and think if I had just invested like a quarter of the time that I invest now into that interior space of figuring out, you know, what I wanted to be and express, I could have saved myself decades of, of toil and yearning and unhappiness and angst, Mm, you know, because it has to come first. And so what happens, I'm sure you experience this all the time. Somebody comes to you, an athlete and says, this is my goal. People come to me, they say, Help me, uh, help me figure out how I'm going to finish this Ironman or or do this marathon. And I usually say, well, why, you know, why are you doing this? Why is this important to you? And I find that quite often they don't quite know. Like, and I'm thinking maybe this isn't the right goal for you to be chasing. Like, what's going on in your life that's being underserved or is underdeveloped that is driving you? to, you know, quest for this, but maybe there's something else that you should be, that your energy would be better served looking into 
instead of hanging your hat on this race or whatever the case may be. That spooks people, doesn't it? Yeah, they don't want to talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) And they say thank you very much and they call somebody else. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code richroll for 15% off your first purchase. I had um, uh, issue probably top, we'll say five gymnast in, uh, in the country, which means she's one of the top in the world, you mm-hmm. know, maybe top 10 in the world. And she was, I think, probably 14 at the age. And she came with her mom. This was maybe 10 years ago. And she came with her mom and she, they sat down. We we're having a great discussion. Um, it's probably like 15 years ago now. And it was apparent. This young, bright, you know, 4.0 private education um, kid that was actually doing uh, high-level gymnastics and school, which is really rare mm-hmm. uh, at the top. Uh, so she's super smart and driven. She had OCD, 100% OCD. It was like jumping all over the table. So I um, asked her to leave and just so I can talk to mom for a minute. And I said, listen, this is, might be hard for you to hear. Your, your daughter's amazing. Here's the things that you know I'm able to see as assets. And here's the thing that I think is uh, right underneath the surface of why you came in. She's got obsessive compulsive disorder. I said, we can work on that. And if we do that work, there is no guarantee that she'll be able to get the results that she's been getting in gymnastics mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because that OCD is actually driving that need right, for compulsive right, right. and you know th- obsessive thoughts, doing things just right to feel okay is fueling perfectionism for her. 
And so that's scary. You're not going to. You're not going to be surprised by what mom did. Yeah, she said. <laughs> she showed you the door. <laughs> she said, thanks. Uh, yeah. So she's going to be a codependent partner in this, in fostering this OCD through through Olympic glory. Yeah, that's it. And what ended up happening is that, um, you know, the I, I followed kind of her trajectory and she did, she did relatively well, but um, she, I don't think she was able to really reach her potential. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. It brings up this idea of the uh, implication of character defects, uh, negative, you know, negative character aspects, which actually might be fueling performance. Like in my own case, like, you know, as a, as a good alcoholic, like I'm a control freak, right? I want to control every aspect of my life. Of course, I don't control any of those things. It's an illusion uh, and it doesn't serve me, mm-hmm. but I have this mentality that, that, that believes that that's actually a benefit to, you know, the focus that I put into my training and how meticulous I am about this and that. And, yeah. and, and it's very difficult for me. I grapple with it and, and I'm, and I know that I'm, I would be better served by surrendering and letting go, which is a, you know, not my default state and I'm constantly working on it. But, but I'm interested in hearing about some other kinds of, you know, like if somebody is really, um, you know, I guess you could say, ego fueled or narcissistic or I mean on some level the level of athletes that you're dealing with there has to be an ego component to that to actually believe that they could be the best in the world at what I mean there's there's a there's a level of like a semi delusion delusional aspect to that but that belief system is part of what's allowing them to to be successful yeah I mean there's you know, for some of the best in the world, there's just enough anxiety, just enough of OCD, just mm-hmm. enough um, narcissism, just enough perfectionism to allow people to, um, you know, to really train at a uh, obnoxious pace, at a diligent, painful pace to become masterful at something. And while I'd love to be able to say that all the best in the world are really healthy people and, they've, you know... It, Truth is, it's, there's a smattering of, of mm-hmm. well-being at the at the top, but yeah, there's there's some stuff in there for us to, to you know we can unpack that for sure. But I love this conversation about control, mm-hmm. you know, that you were just talking about because it is it is such it is so scary to let go, and at the same time, we think we can control much and it's safer, and it's just a, a lot of extra energy spent, a lot of wasted oh, energy. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a, it's just a lot of stuff, you know, mm. and here, here's maybe play with this idea is that letting go is a big part of being present. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so that it requires some trust. And so what are we trusting? If we can trust that whatever is about to come next, everything we need is already inside us. Okay. So if we can anchor into that thought, so whatever's going to come next to my life, I've got what it takes to be able to adjust to it. Mm-hmm. I might not like it. It might not be easy or pleasant. It might not be what I wanted, but whatever comes next, I can nod my head like, I'm going to be able to lean into it and adjust and I'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. That's the space where faith comes in, mm. you know? And I think that, uh, you know, for me, that's a big part, like, you know, that's a big part of recovery because you have to have faith that if you let go as a control freak, that the world isn't going to fall apart like that, that, that ridiculous, obnoxious, narcissistic ideal is actually not true. Mm -hmm. Um, And that provides that, that space, you know, and I think 
by exploring that, then you start to develop this awareness of, of you know, higher states of consciousness. Yeah. Well, you can't, I mean, if you're trying to control everything, it's, you would just end up staying kind of like small. Small and know, miserable. Yeah. Just kind of like hoarding. <laughs> and alone and, and yeah. isolated. Yeah. That's yeah. a good protector, isn't it? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, well, I think that, you know, control is a good platform to kind of talk about the difference between working with an athlete who's part of an organization or a team, like you working with the, you know, the Seahawks, where, you know, every athlete plays a role in a larger unit versus the gymnast or the runner or, or you know, somebody who's in a more, much more individualistic sport. I mean, individual sports, of course, they require teams of people around them to support them at the elite level, but it's a, it's a different thing, right? So how does that drive, like, how you work with your clients? Well, I just think it's understanding the difference. You know, there's a different skill set and appreciation between um, team sports and individual sports. And mm-hmm. w- my work in the in um, combat sports, so, you know, the UFC, when the cl- cage door closes, it's it, it's man against man. You know, and it's the most ancient of being tested. You know, you get your your head and your hands, and mm-hmm. and, and that's it, and your skill, right? So. That, that's a very different performance state than working with a team where it's very interdependent. And um, yeah, so there's, there's checks and balances on both sides, but understanding that there's a different makeup uh, for those two sports in general is really important. I mean, and when we're choosing what craft we want to get engaged with or helping guide our kids, you know, that's important to understand that as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, is there a difference between the kind of mentality of somebody who excels in an individual sport versus somebody who's a great team member? Yeah, they can. Ex- I wouldn't say that it's like, OK, here's the one, two, three things that are different. But in essence, people that are in individual sports, what I've come to learn is that they have the ability to um, it's all on their shoulders and that's how they want it. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, the, it begins and ends with their control freaks. Well, you said it, not me. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, yeah. So, but that's the that's totally the difference. Right, right, right. Yeah. And and uh, and what about the difference between you know an athlete? Um, I mean, listen, the stakes are are very high at the elite level, no matter what sport you're in. But there's a difference between the action sport athletes or the Felixes, where you know the the ramifications of a mistake or a mishap are are potentially life threatening. Right. Or whether they're in the cage or they're jumping off the stratos or they're doing some crazy, you know, motorcycle stunt where if something goes wrong, they're going to die. And I would imagine that that creates a tremendous amount of anxiety that for would be for, well, for the person or for the for, people involved for that. I mean, I don't know. I'm interested in, in, in hearing your thoughts about what it's like to work with those athletes versus, you know, maybe, uh, you know, a track and field athlete. Sure. Yeah. So. I think this will be a counterintuitive insight is that I've been fortunate enough to work with some, just some wonderfully talented risks, what seems to be risk taking individuals in the action sports space. And what they've taught me is the majority of them don't see themselves as risk takers. Mm -hmm. We look at it and go, that's crazy. We look at it and like, I can't believe the risk that this person's taking. They must not love their mom. They must not love their, their wife. You know, like they must not love their husbands because of what they're doing and the, the harm that they're putting themselves in, in way. But what we're missing when we see the final feat, if you will, is that we're missing all of the skill 
that's developed over time for them and the refinement of that skill and the trust that these people have in their skills. And, and they, they're really clear that they become most alive when they're on the edge of their capabilities and um, they're forced to be fully engaged in the craft. Mm-hmm. So that's a complete, complete connection that, that is happening for them. And that's true. The science backs that up. Is for us to be most, uh, you know, the flow state, if you if we'll talk about that for mm-hmm. a minute. It's when we're at the edge of our capability, when we're in that pocket between I've got great skill and the challenge that I'm about to face is real, that our physiology lights up and that's where we can enter into that place where it's like, okay, I've got to be really on point for this. Yeah. I mean, I, I get that. I don't think it's counterintuitive at all. I mean, I, I uh, yeah. l- let me, l- the counterintuitive part is that they don't see themselves as risk takers. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, also, w- you know, what the, the observer doesn't really understand is the incremental work that went to get there. So if it's a big wave surfer, you know, for the 80 foot wave, he surfed the five foot wave and then he f- surfed the seven foot wave and then he, you know, and it just worked, it worked his way up so that by the time he's on the 80 foot wave, it doesn't have that dramatic impact that it does for the viewer. And that's exactly, I right. recently met, uh, Alex Honnold, uh, oh, the climber yeah. who just, mm-hmm. you know, I just, I'm, when I watch his videos, I'm just absolutely mystified and fixated on yeah. how somebody could, you know, climb El Cap, you know, or half dome without ropes. Like I'm watching it. Just, I cannot wrap my brain around the kind of, you know, state of presence of mind that somebody like that would have to be in to be calm and execute what he needs to do to climb up these rock faces. And he says the same thing. It's just, he doesn't see it as a risk. He's worked it out. He understands, you know, everything that could happen and he's trained it. He understands the wall. He knows what he needs to do. He's calculated everything. And still I'm thinking, yeah, but what if like a rogue gust of wind comes by. I mean, the ramifications for one mishap are cataclysmic. Oh yeah. That's the deal is that the consequence is really high. So it's this interplay between it, there's risk involved, but it's not the risk that the viewers are perceiving Mm -hmm. it to be. And uh, yeah, it's that level of commitment is real. Yeah. And most of us don't get that in our daily living. We don't have the opportunities for it. And I look at those people like modern day Buddhas because the level, uh, you know, like we were saying, like the, the, the state of consciousness that they have to enter into, the mastery of the mind is phenomenal. Yeah. Right. This is, this is this <laughs> what we're talking about is the topic of, of the book that I'm working on uh-huh. right now. That's yeah, exactly cool, cool, it. Cool. Yeah. So what, what do these folks, these men and women have to teach us that are on the edge of capability? So what do they have to teach us? Oh, they've got so much to teach us. <laughs> well, they've got to teach us like, here's, here's an idea that I think is really important is that um, they, most of them, not all, most of them, um, it's more painful for them to walk away from an idea or an experience like El Cap, if you will, than to go for it and become bruised or banged or even, you know, critically injured and even death, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's, think about that statement. It's more painful to have an idea that's possible to walk away from it because of fear and to live with that fear is more painful than actually going for it and becoming hurt. Mm -hmm. And hand in hand with that is the idea that really pain is the only true motivator of personal change. It's like, I say that all the time. Oh, you and do? Pe- yeah. And people look at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> no. Well, I'm just yeah. l- looking at my own life experience and, yeah. and, and knowing that the only time that I've really ever 
uh, change in a significant way is just because I was in enough pain in order to do it. Yeah, that's been my experience as well, is that people change. It's difficult to change, mm-hmm. you know, to change habits, to change thinking, to change patterns that are unconscious, if you will. And the only reason I understand people change is because of great pain. Right. Yeah. But but change is possible without that. It's just trickier. No, I think that there's small pain. So let's use a, let's use running for an example, is that you and I could set out for a run and let's say that my socks are a little bit maladjusted and I'm on mile two and I know I'm going to get a bad blister and it might turn to bleeding or whatever and it might stop me from being able to uh, to finish it. And so I'll stop and adjust my socks. So I'm mm-hmm. changing something. It might cost me some serious time and, you know, the whole thing. But but you've got a different kind of value set and you're like, I feel the blister, but I'm going to go and my feet are going to be bloodied and I'm not going to stop. So that's kind of what an alcoholic does. Right. You know, yeah. I, I would not choose the latter. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, and so, and you just go and go and go until that pain is so great that you can't go anymore. Mm-hmm. So there's levels of pain, right? Mm-hmm. Dissatisfaction of not being able to be fully present at the starting blocks in the Olympics is, is, is a sort of pain. Mm-hmm. So is, you know, banging your head against the wall because um, you've dra- dramatically fallen from, uh, you know, a climb. Mm-hmm. You know, there's l- like literal physical pain and then there's the pain of not being as all of you. Right. But if someone's elevator is going down and and you as somebody who's looking at it from the outside looking in, you know what the solution is or the change that that person could make to save themselves from some level of despair that they're headed towards. You can't will upon them that change. You can't give them the willingness that's no, required to make yep. that change. That has to yep. be self-generated. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed with trying to find ways to help people, you know, avoid that bottom to catalyze change short of, you know, so they don't have to suffer. That's right. Increase pain for people's lives. Right. Yeah. Right. So what do you, you bring the bottom up, yeah. <laughs> make them suffer <laughs> enough so that it will generate their own willingness. I yeah. mean, I see it all the time in recovery. It's like they say, it, you know, uh, recovery is not for the people that need it. It's for the people that want it. Right. And, mm-hmm. and. And not everyone gets it, and it's painful to watch people come in and know what the solution is for them, and and to see them struggle. One when the, you know yeah. if they could make us a, a couple simple life alterations, that they would be able to get it, and it's painful to watch that. Yeah, it is. But so it, in the athletic context, yeah, it's like, to see like, oh, if this person would do this one thing, their performance would you know improve ten x. Yeah, I think one of the ways that I help increase this for folks is by helping people make a fundamental decision. Am I setting myself, my life efforts up to avoid failure or to approach success? Mm -hmm. And most people say, no, 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 I'm I'm about approaching success. And then you give them an opportunity that has fear involved in it. And which one do they choose? Is there hesitation? Is there, you know, um, attention or are they leaning in and like, yeah, going for it. Most people have tension around the opportunity to go for it. Mm-hmm. So most people are designing their whole life efforts to avoid failure. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the, if you, if people can really have an honest look at that fun, I think it's the mo- one of the most fundamental decisions we make about orientating our life. If we can get them to look honestly at the way that they're doing that, that increases the pain tremendously for people. Right. I mean, the, the, the pain associated with not trying is not that great. Yeah, right. Right. So and, unless and, you're and called on it, unless you're called on it, like, listen, you say that you're going for it, but you're really holding back by right. all these kind of excuses, 
And people are like, oh, I've been exposed. Right, right, <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's the fear of failure. There's the fear of success, which probably doesn't get enough attention. Um, but we're in a cult, uh, comfort-seeking culture where risk-taking isn't necessarily always uh, encouraged. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's easy to just say, I'm not going to try. And if you don't try, you, you, you risk nothing. Right. You don't ever so, get to find out. Right. You're just in your comfort zone. Yeah. Right. Ooh, that's a dirty word in this office. Oh, comfort zone? Yeah, dirty word. Really? Why is that? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, when we move... It's antiquated. Yeah. Well, when we move outside of... No, no, no. I'm saying when... Oh, being in your comfort yeah. zone is... Right, right. Yeah. I'm, you know, it's this. It's the layer outside of the comfort zone where real learning takes place, but people are so afraid of panic and failure, which is maybe the next ring outside of being uncomfortable. If you think of it like circles in a, in a tree center that, um, yeah, people just, you know, are searching for comfort rather than growth. And right. So that's why. Well, we need to demystify failure and we need to encourage failure. We're so afraid of failing, but failing is an essential aspect of every success. You know, oh, I know yeah. the phrase you use is like fail fast, right? Yeah, fail, fail fast. Fail, and- fail. I mean, and I learned that from business <laughs> mm-hmm. folks, like go for it. You know, the innovation kind of in business is fail, fail fast, fail forward, like figure it out as you go. Mm-hmm. And I've been playing with this idea for failure that not going is failure, but going and making a mistake is a whole different setup. So go for it, make, make mistakes. We call it failure, but I, I think I'm reorientating the way I understand this is that failure is not going. It's not fully committing because people are watching or you're overthinking about what could go wrong mm-hmm. or you're overthinking the burden of if it goes right, fear of success and failure, right? So I think that failure for me, as, I, as I'm as i growing deeper with this concept, is that it's about not going. That's the failure. Mm-hmm. But going for it, making mistake, ah, dust it off. Like, right. Keep rolling. That's keep super powerful. Yeah, yeah That's that cool? really powerful. Yeah. I really like that a lot because that really is... The impediment to so many people trying new things that keep them stuck. Yeah. They're afraid of being judged if they don't succeed. So here's something that's, I I love this part of our conversation because this is, this was true for me as as when I was a kid and I grew up surfing is that I was a different person in free surfing and and when I was competitively surfing, different. I I was not better (laughs) when I was competing. Like I, I, I was too consumed with what the outcome might be or what people were thinking about me. And I love if I could bring this full circle is that the only difference for the Olympic Games or World Championships or Super Bowl is that um, people are watching, more people are watching. And Mm -hmm. when people can settle into that idea and then make a decision like, no, 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 I'm not going to change who I am because more eyeballs are watching me. I'm going to commit to how I want to feel and I want to commit to how I want to be, and I'm going to commit to how I want to think, and I want to commit to the highest level of skill I possibly can, and to do that everywhere I go. Mm-hmm. So the work is in fortifying this strong sense of self, because the idea is that you want to allow the athlete to be their most actualized self in these super stressful, high stakes contexts. Yeah, but so there's a nuance here, which is, if you think it's stressful, then it is. If you think there's pressure, then you've created that. If you see it as an opportunity, if you see it as something different that doesn't have stress or pressure, you're also right. Mm -hmm. So just because um, an environment is noisy and there's people watching, 
doesn't mean that there's pressure. Oh, I, I don't know. Let it get sit in right there. Yeah, yeah, let yeah. that work a little. No, bit. No, I mean, really, what you're saying is is that you create your own reality, and and your reality is informed by the perceptions that you choose to pay attention to, right? Yeah. So, so you know, you're on the starting blocks at the Olympic Games in the stadium, and people are screaming, and there's television cameras, and there there's an objective reality about what that is, but but the the sort of subjective meaning that you adhere to that is up to you. That's your choice. Right, hundred percent. But, but the level of of groundedness that an athlete would have to have to tune all that out and dismiss it, so that they can be fully present in that moment, is is sounds like an astounding amount of work. Well, that's what to have to master. That's the that's mastery. The, that's the work. Right, right. That's the work. And you know. The, I've got so much I want to say about that, but that is the work, you know, and that comes from um, two places. One is the anchor is can you, you know, use, use this framework, this mental framework about how you want to live your life and get really clear with that. Mm -hmm. Right. So that becomes kind of the robustness of how you move through life and uh, put an anchor in that or asterisk in that idea framework for a minute. And then can we use skills to be able to breathe when we're, when we're finding that our, our framework is not holding up <laughs> to the storm of people watching or the intensity of a moment that we've contrived in our own mind. So there's skills and there's framework and we need to be able to do both so that we can be grounded. And so follow this thought through a little bit with me is that if we can get out of our comfort zone more often, we can, we have opportunities to see how well we're doing with being able to be grounded, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, it's it's an emotional thing. It's emotions that make us oh, uncomfortable. It's not it's not necessarily physical. Everyone thinks it's physically uncomfortable. I don't know. Maybe I'm different, but for me, it's like fight or flight kicks on. There's a whole thing that happens inside of me, and um, it's an emotional response mm-hmm. uh, that, that happens. Mm-hmm. But I think that if you if you acclimate yourself to always stepping out of your comfort zone then being out of your comfort zone suddenly becomes the comfort zone, yeah, right? right? You become comfortable with with the kind of emotions that are associated with stepping out and taking that risk. Yeah, and so follow that thread a little bit more, we become comfortable with new. And mm-hmm. and then the, the, the wisdom behind that is that everything is new. Everything is new, always is. Mm-hmm. And so if we can be comfortable with that, we can, I'm gonna say a dangerous word, we can let go. Right. <laughs> How dare you? That's so terrifying though. You know, I mean, I think that when I look at any kind of, you know, anxiety that I'm harboring or, or resentments or any kind of, you know, negative emotions that I'm experiencing, I mean, I, and I follow the thread, I try to trace it to its origin. It always comes back to fear. Yeah, it doesn't. So fear is really at the, is the foundation of it all. So when you're dealing with an athlete who, you know, is experiencing stress or anxiety in a, in a high pressure situation, doesn't it always revolve around fear, fear, fear of I, I don't win or what's going to happen if I do win or what are people going to think of me? All these emotions that are, are, are related to something that happened in the past or a potential situation that might arise in the future, neither of which are real. That's exactly right. You know, fear of letting someone down, fear of not being good enough, fear of your life efforts being a waste if you don't get an outcome. You know, all of that stuff is right there embedded for people that are 
you know, leaning into getting really good at something. Mm -hmm. And when you begin to unpack this stuff with an athlete and, and start to kind of, you know, blaze this path towards mastery, doesn't it require having to look at, at, at the, the, the root cause of these fears and start to, you know, deal with what is triggering them? Yeah. And it's not, it's not as scary as it sounds because it, isn't it true for you that you've got some stuff you're afraid of? Of course. Yeah. And, and me too. I'm okay. afraid of you right now. Yeah, here we go. I'm We're, afraid of where this conversation is going. It's, it's about to happen. <laughs> Temperature is going to heat up uh, here in a minute for you. No, but so we've got these fears and if we just can um, own them and honor them and put some language to it, then, okay, that's what it is. All right, great. Mm-hmm. And then what are some skills I can use to to manage that when it rears its head? And do I want to keep living aligned to those fears? Or flip, remember that fundamental decision I was talking about? Avoiding failure, mm-hmm. right? That's a fear-based response versus, no, no, no. I want to really get after it in life. I just want to get after it. I'm, I'm going to slide into home base a little dirty, a little bruised, but I'm going to know that when my head hits the pillow at night or I slide into home base of, of life, if you will, that I went for it. Mm-hmm. And what am I going to teach my kids? And what am I going to teach my loved ones about how I orientate myself in life? Right. And it's not about, quote unquote, like no fear, it's that, about that, that it's does about not exist. it's a, yeah, yeah it's not about removing fear from your life it's about your relationship to that fear and whether that fear acts as an impediment to your growth That's and your right. goals yes and when we when we're fully connected to this moment and we've got a stillness about it and we're anchoring to the essence of this moment fear is really not part of it and people people go what, what do you mm-hmm. mean like sometimes I'm really scared no. When we're really connected to this moment, everything is well, just... Everything's good. Everything everything's is. Everything's fine. Yeah. You it's know? the story around it that gets scary about right. what might happen next and and how I might not be able to adjust what's going to happen next. That's that, that, you know, that's what I was saying earlier is like, another way of saying this is that, can I trust that whatever is going to happen, I got it. I'll be able to figure it out. Mm-hmm. It might not be exactly the way I wanted it, but I'm going to learn. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to keep learning because... You know, the, the part of the values is growing and, and, and learning. Right. When you kind of chase that emotion, say you're experiencing, you know, some kind of supercharged fear and go, all right, well, what's the worst thing that could happen? That's and you cool kind thing. of like live yeah. in that terrible, you know, potentiality and then realize like, but I'd still be okay. I'm still going to be like, mm. these are just emotions. Mm, right. They're telling us that, that they're life threatening, but they're actually not. That's an illusion. Right? Yeah. That's, that's part of the way our DNA has designed us is that when we experience something that is a threat, we're, we've got this full on experience, you know, the fight or flight or freeze mechanism, the mm-hmm. sympathetic activation, if you will. And that doesn't mean that it's life threatening. It just means we've interpreted something to right. be dangerous and Failures, you know, like if you think it's terrible, then it is. And every time you get close to that being a possibility, then your body will respond in a very predictable way. And it's really, it's, it's nauseating, literally. <laughs> right. And it, it goes back to story. What is mm. the story that you're telling yourself about yourself? Yeah, right. And to do that lonely work, I bet you've done it. But for, for your listeners to spend some time and to really think about what is the story and what is the future that they're creating that could be compelling and how they want to live, you know, moment to moment on the journey that they're on. Mm-hmm. Just to do some of that lonely work and get it out of our heads and put it down on paper and say, okay, this is, this is how I want to co-create, and that's a purposeful word, co-create my life. 
And this is the story that I want to start living forward. It's mm-hmm. really cool. It is cool. I think for a lot of people, just the idea that you actually can change your story, not just about where you're headed with your life, but even what happened in the past. Oh, yeah. You know, we're so wed to this idea, you know, we identify certain things that have happened to us in our past and we make these decisions that these are the important defining moments in our life, but those are just decisions that your brain made. And then you have reinforced those over years and years and years. And, you know, for most people, (laughs) these stories are not serving us, whether it's in our relationships with our parents or our spouse or or our boss or, or whatever. And to be able to go back and say, well, I'm going to eliminate that one event that happened to me, and I'm going to look at this other thing that I never think about and decide that, that that's the defining moment in my life that could create a new story about who you are and how you react and what you're expected to do and all these things. It's so possible. I want to tell you a funny story. You okay. sparked an idea for me. Is um, So uh, this is my first year in college, and there was... Um, three professors that were best friends. And I love bringing up their names because they're so important to me. Dr. Zenka, Dr. Perkins, and Dr. Kuzio. And these three men, um, one was a philosopher, a psychologist, and a theologian. All right. This is like a story out of the Old Testament. Here it goes, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. This is not a joke. Yeah. And, and so um, they, they wrapped their arms around me to, to in, invite me to un, try to attempt to understand the world of the invisible. And I've been fascinated with it ever since that invitation. So I never had the nerve to, to really talk to anybody when I was younger about things that were challenging to me, right? And so I felt really kind of comfortable around the, the psychologist professor, Dr. Dr. Cusio. And so one day I walked up to him and said, um, hey, can I, um, can I talk to you about something that's bothering me? He goes, sure. And so we started walking and he goes, what's up? And I said, now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and my, my voice is cracked. My, arm, my hands are shaking. Like I'm nervous to share something that is, has been really troubling with me troubling me. And looking back, I was, I had some anxiety I was working through, you know, I was like, I was the first person to go to college in my family and, Mm. and I was way over my head in a relationship and surfing was falling apart. And there was all this kind of crisis, if you will, for crisis, first world problem. These are (laughs) all totally like, like, I'm very clear with that. Upwardly mobile white guy problems. Yeah. Like I'm totally clear with this. And, um, but I didn't have the skills to manage it. So it felt like a crisis, you know? And, um, and so he says, sure. And we started walking and I got into my story and I was probably um, 90 seconds into my story. And seriously, my voice was shaking. My hands were rattling and he kind of stopped and he looked at me and he says, when someone knocks on your door, do you have to answer it? And I was like totally interrupted. It was like, it felt rude. And he looked at me and he just walked away. And I said to myself, these psychologists are weird. Whoa. Like, what is that? And I got, I got angry. Like I was, I, I, it totally shifted my physiology. And so one week passed and I come up to him again. I say, Hey, can, can I talk to you again? Like, I don't think I was able to, to say like, I, I, I wonder if you can help me out with something. He says, sure. What's your story? You know, not, I'm sorry. He says, sure. What do you want to talk about? I said, now he says, yeah, we started walking to class. Mm-hmm. And so I begin uh, 90 seconds into my story. It was the exact same story, 90 seconds in. And he stopped me and he looked at me and he said, uh, when someone calls your phone, this is before cell phones. When someone calls your phone, uh, do you have to pick it up? And he looked at me and he walked away and he walked on. 
And it took me way you're too long. You're a little wax on, wax off totally. philosophy here. Yeah, and it, <laughs> you're much smarter than I am. Like, I, I know you're going to get this thing. It took me way too long to figure it out. But he says, um, it, so what I come to, came to figure out is that I don't have to entertain the story anymore. Like, this is, mm-hmm. the story was a knock on the door. It was mm-hmm. a thought. Well, also, it's an entity distinct from you. Right. Totally. It's it's disassociated from who you are. It's a third party that's interrupting you. So it creates that, 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 um, disassociation of consciousness with the thinking mind. Oh, that's heavy. That's right. Yeah. It's, you're right on the money with it. It's so heavy, but the, the, the concreteness of like when someone knocks on your door, do you have to answer it? And what he did in that moment, he totally shifted my physiology. Hmm. So he interrupted the story you know, physically and mentally and challenged me to say, basically, stop telling yourself the story. I don't even want to hear it. (laughs) Stop telling me the story. (laughs) It's the same thing. Like, is it Uh working? You know, so I don't know. I I think it's really cool, this idea of storyline. So how do you, so how have you like used that to like, what are the, what are the tools then that you go to, to then change your story, right? Like, how do you then implement that idea? So the first order of business is increasing the awareness of my inner dialogue, my inner experience. So that's where mindfulness training is, is part of it. So the first order of business is like, okay, um, can I increase my awareness of my dialogue? And when my dialogue is supporting the vision that I want for my life, then right on. Cool. You know, like you're reinforcing that. Yeah. Keep it rolling. That's cool. But when that inner voice is, is fear-based or it is critical or there's doubt or, excuse me, and it, and, and it has some toxicity to it. Like there's a high frequency of that. I'm, I'm getting better. I say this, I've been studying this a long time within myself. I work on being better at catching it sooner mm-hmm. so that I can um, just gently say hello and goodbye to it. Like I don't have to water that seed anymore. I don't have to jump on that thought train anymore. I don't have to entertain that knock, if you will. And I can just say hello and goodbye to it mm-hmm. and move on to being here. And it's incredibly powerful when you can actually do that. Yeah. So this is the story around self-talk, right? Mm-hmm. You know, increase the awareness of our inner dialogue, and then we can actually train self-talk. We can train it through writing down the triggers that I know take place in my life that that activate a certain type of thinking, and I can actually replace those thoughts, like program and train them. Uh, that's one pathway. And the other pathway is just increase great sensitivity and awareness of the dialogue and be able to just effortlessly let go. Right. And, and what are the kind of daily practices that, mm-hmm. that you are a fan of? Yeah, I get that question all the time. Like, how do you do this? Mm-hmm. So there's, there's something, you know, it's, it's called mindset. And so really that idea is that we set our mind and we're not victims, right, to, and we're not, um, there's not this kind of uh, external world that forces us to think a certain way. So we set our mind. So I begin my day with a primer. So every day I start in, in a way that, optimizes me being um, primed for a great mindset throughout the day. And yeah, at my center, I'm a spiritual man. That's when, if people say, you know, you know, that question we talk about, what do you do? Like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just a spiritual dude trying to figure things out. And um, how's that go over at the cocktail party? <laughs> they go, wah, wah, you, know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so, um, so this is, this is how I prime my days is that I take one breath. So the sheets are still on. At this point, I'm still in bed and I take one breath and that is just to get centered. That's it. And, but I'm fully committing to that breath now. Mm-hmm. So that's it. And this isn't in a day in an era where I know what most people are doing. They're, they're jumping out of bed to their alarm. 
They're ripping open their emails. They're checking their Instagram. They're seeing what Twitter activity is going on. And that's just getting into the business of everyone else's story. So I just take a moment for myself and I take one breath. And what does that take? About 12 seconds. It's one breath. And then I have one thought of gratitude. So I'm priming, actually, the science of this is really cool. Um, I'm priming up particular parts of my brain to, mm. to wake up. And so I have one thought of gratitude. And in that one thought of gratitude, I completely experience it. And if I want to have another one, that's cool. You know, like, I'll, but I, I make a commitment to ex- completely experience that thought. And then I have one thought, one, I'm sorry, one intention for the day that I set. So mm. I've got one breath, one thought, I'm sorry, one, <laughs> one breath, one gratitude thought, one intention. And then I completely feel that. And then I get my feet on the ground and I just feel my feet and I get grounded. Hmm. And that's so that's a exercise I do. It's what does that take? Like, I don't know, 90 seconds ago. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's cool. It's so a great little primer. Right, right. So it, it doesn't involve getting up and, and you know, getting in the lotus position. No, no, no. Yeah, not for me. Yeah. Right, right. And then after that, I purposely generate the energy that I, I enjoy in life. So I'll rip on some music or I'll have, a, you know, just a charged conversation with my family members and just kind of bring and generate, you know, that, that energy that I want to cultivate for in my life. And, and, you know, we're talking right now, I, I'm not a guy that's pumped on adrenaline. Like there's a, there's um, an appreciation for me of stillness and presence, but mm-hmm. there's a, there's a, there's a vibe that I want out of this. And so I, I, I just kind of purposely do that in the, in the next phase and, you know, I'm on to eating breakfast and. You know everything else, so that's just kind of a primer that I do. Right, it's a it's a mindful, very conscious effort to create uh, a mindset and a trajectory for your day. Exactly, that it. takes up no time. No time, and it's, right? And then over time, that becomes and it's not so, painful. No, no, <laughs> we can all afford ninety yeah, seconds. Yeah, yeah. I know it. Yeah. Uh-huh. No matter how busy you are, I like that. I like that technique. Yeah, it's a primer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, so, but do you, so do you do, you don't do like a formal meditation practice? Mm, yeah, I have. I've spent, I've spent a lot of time in that, in that space. Um, and so I, I'm not a good example of it because I spend time with um, people that I work with. And so I'm actually doing it with people. And so, you know, there's some days that um, I'm, I'm able to do it often with people. Mm-hmm. And so w- w- my answer to that is, the value of quieting down and becoming clear and connected is tremendous, mm-hmm. you know? And so I get to experience it often throughout the day and the value of doing it and just setting aside some time to activate your parasympathetic. That's one way. If you're kind of a science minded person, activate your parasympathetic. If you're getting after it in life and you want to switch on that parasympathetic system to recover, it's a great way to do it mm-hmm. now. If you're spiritual, that, that that there's a way that you say, okay, I'm just going to connect to the essence of what is. And if you're practicing this, you know, more from a mental kind of skill level, you know, it's great to just be observed without connecting to your thoughts. There's so mm-hmm. many different reasons why it's amazing. But well, the benefits of it are are amazing. I had a, a meditation expert on the podcast a while back. This guy Charlie Knowles, who's fantastic, and and he was. Uh, he was talking about just the inherent power of not being reactive. Like imagine yourself in a stressful uh, athletic context or a work environment context where somebody's being aggressive towards you. And, and, and in general, without putting that time in and that training in, you're just going to react. You're going to have your default reaction. And generally that's not serving you or, or getting you the outcome 
that you desire. But what if you're able to just observe it dispassionately mm. and, and consciously evaluate what the best course of action is in that microsecond? Yeah. And that's, the, that's a really great conversation because in fast paced sports, let's say hockey, you know, or, or football, uh, read and react. That's really important. Mm. So you want to, you want to program ourselves in, in fast paced environments to not have to think, but to be so present that we can read and react and move on to the next moment, if you will, mm. like that quickly, um, as opposed to this image of, you know, lotus pose on the on the mountaintop. You know that that's not great for f- high stakes environments, mm-hmm. you know, or sport environments. So there's a balance between these two to pay attention to. And what I've come to learn is that uh, we need to train our physiology and our technique to be able to access it quickly in live env- environments. And the other side of it is training our minds to be fully still and present in the present moment mm-hmm. is how we can do it better. Mm-hmm. So it's the yin and yang. It's, it's, the, right. it's the both of these. Yeah. And, and looking back over your life, I mean, I know that kind of this episode that you had as a young surfer really has informed this entire career trajectory. I mean, looking back, it's like if you were writing a Lifetime movie, you know, it all falls into place perfectly, perfectly as being, because surfing is the ultimate kind of, you know, soulful, mindful endeavor, but it's also a sport. And so there's this, you know, to use what you just said, a yin and a yang of competition Mm-hmm. versus kind of just the, the natural kind of presence and what it's like to the experience of, of riding waves and how those two, two worlds kind of collide with each other and on some level are incompatible. And that, that kind of um, reality that you were in, like trying to merge these two worlds and make sense of them. Yeah, and I right? didn't. Like take right. me back to that experience oh, a little well, bit. I just, I didn't have skills. Yeah. I didn't have the mental skills to be able to figure it out. And I was the volume in my head about what other people were thinking about me possibly <laughs> was so loud that I couldn't, uh, I couldn't attune to the environment, myself, and I couldn't tune to the environment. In a surfing competition. Yeah, that's it. Right. And it's complicated yeah. because the ethos of surfing really isn't a, a competitive endeavor. Like it's not cool to be you know, I mean, I don't know what it was like for you, but for a lot of people, it's like, oh, it's it's not cool to be competitive in surfing. It's cool to be the sole surfer mm. and then to be the competitive surfer and trying to excel when you're combating that idea of what you're supposed to do and not do to fit in. Yeah, there's definitely a um, there's two different sides of the surf world. There's both of those. Mm-hmm. And so the culture that I grew up in was much more um was pretty hostile towards the competitive side of it, mm. you know, and, and I don't want people to think that I was this young ripper that was the best in the world that, that I, you know, I was just trying to figure me out in a sport that I really enjoyed doing. And so, yeah, that was it. I just didn't have a framework and I didn't have the skills to manage it. And I think what I've come to learn is that many people that I have the opportunity to work with, you know, the, the volume for what other people might be thinking of them is pr- actually pretty high. And so if we can turn down that volume, we can actually listen. Wait, say that again. The volume of... So we got this knob, like a visual thinker, you know, is that there's this knob that what everybody else is thinking about me, if that volume is really high and I'm thinking about what they might be thinking about mm-hmm. me, that creates such noise right. that I can't connect. I can't connect to me, first of all. I can't hear me. And then I can't connect to... Um, uh, the information from the, the, my environment. Right, right. Yeah. So There's also a little bit of narcissism in that because most people are n- not thinking about 
you, they're thinking about themselves because they're <laughs> narcissists too. Right? Totally. You know? right. Like so, it's actually not even really happening. Yeah. You know, we attach all this importance to what all, everyone's thinking, but they're caught up in their own shit. If we, if I just would have known that when I was fifteen, right. well, yeah, I'm yeah, still trying to figure that out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, but that was where you know this seed was kind of born of like, how do I, how do I, you know, how do I get more present with what I'm doing so that I can be, so that I can excel competitively better than I am. Right. Yeah. And, and that was the, so the challenge was to, to be able to do what I do when people were watching and now looking back, that's the exact kind of trajectory that I've taken in my life is I needed to figure that out. And here I am, uh, in a career path that is wonderfully colorful. I mean, I love Mm. waking up in the morning and and exploring what's, what's yet to come. And, and to think that that looking back, that that was the epicenter and, you know, epicenter, I guess is a way to say it, that, that put me on this trajectory to do the same for other folks. It's Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. cool. It is really cool. I mean, let's, let's talk a little bit about the Seahawks and and Pete Carroll and how that all kind of came into your life. I mean, you, you know, the kind of nifty tidy narrative is, you know, you're the mindfulness guy and suddenly everybody in the Seahawks is, is meditating. You know, I know this, the, the real story is, is quite different from that, but, but I'm fascinated by, you know, Pete Carroll and what he's built and how you've been able to contribute to that success. It's an amazing story. Oh yeah. I, yeah. It's been a joy to know Pete and to know coach Carroll and understand how he works and to see him develop, um, a culture that mm. is that, um, you know, striving is striving for collectively, uh, people to be at their best. And that's really at the center of what he's designed is a culture that's built on the foundation, um, that with a very clear purpose for people to be their best. And, you know, yeah, that narrative that you laid out that, you know, that everyone's meditating that, you know, that's not it. Right. You know, right. I mean, you know, <laughs> there was that, I think it was that one ESPN piece where there was one, one player was in the Lotus position or something like that. So I guess probably everybody saw that. Yeah. yeah. He was on the cover, you know, oh, was, he was on there. Yeah. yeah so, <laughs> you know, so, but it's, uh, I think, I think a really important thing to say is that, um, before I met Pete, Pete Car- coach Carroll is that he had a very sophisticated approach to, um, creating an environment that helps people celebrate the best of who they are. And it, what I came to understand and what I came to observe is that much of it was rooted already in, in solid sports psychology principles. Mm-hmm. And so th- it was like, that's why when we first met over dinner, the two of our heads were kind of nodding, at least mine was nodding, like, this feels like it's on point, like mm-hmm. it's really working. So when the fir- day one for me, it, it felt like one plus one is no longer equal to it felt like there was this uh, momentum that was, I was able to capture that he had built for many years on how to develop a culture of high performance. Mm-hmm. And the idea of kind of celebrating and emphasizing the uniqueness of the individual player seems to, I mean, you know, I don't, I'm not immersed in the NFL, but I would imagine that's sort of at odds with the typical team environment where it's all about team and falling the line. And, you know, the idea of working together as a team means kind of a shirking of that individuality. Yeah. I think this idea of celebrating the best of who people are, um, isn't that a great relationship to be in? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I want to be in those relationships. Right. It's like a great entrepreneur, you yeah, know, exactly. who's running a great company where yeah. all the employees feel completely empowered and they want to be there. 
Yeah. And, and they're valued. And that's not to say that there's, you know, that there's not ever tension in an environment. Like this is, this is, um, hundreds, hundreds of highly testosterone built, uh, and, and expressive men that, and that's not to mean that there's not tension, but it, that the principles in place are really thoughtful and very clear. And, and the ones that he've, he's created are evidence actually in, in good science of psychology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So all, what I'm doing is, is, um, bringing some, um, some continued, um, science to the environment, supporting the culture, and then bringing techniques that people can use to, to train their minds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you do, you do that one-on-one with the players and then you do it in a organizational context. Yeah. So I, I spend most, I think I spend a healthy amount of time with the coaches, you know, and if you think about the, the lever, if you will, of impact and influence is that, um, you know, I could spend time one-on-one with an athlete, which I do. And, and we get into a great connection and there's some skills and there's some understandings and there's some trainings that we're doing for his mindset and, and the whole thing. And then a coach can so easily undo it. Mm-hmm. And so what I've found is so much better to, to, to understand the coach's language, to understand how they see the world. What is their philosophy? What are they trying to solve for the athlete to work inside of that framework? Um, and then they ask the same for me, like, okay, well, what do you value? What is your philosophy? What are you trying to, um, you know, help uh, in, in, in this uh, equation that we're trying to solve. And, and then we both align together. Now, bang, now we've got this really great momentum mm-hmm. uh, to create. So it's, it's, um, it's not as kind of clean as, as I work in groups and individuals. It's, it's part of the DNA, which is, I think what makes it so, mm-hmm. um, potent. Right. From you the know? top down. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, the value of, of being your best and the science of how to cultivate that and the conversations about um, how to think well, um, it, it's just part of the DNA of the culture. Of the I would club. imagine that that would place you in great demand in the business context where CEOs would want you to come in and, and, and give, the, give them and their company the Pete Carroll treatment or you know, the Michael yeah. Gervais treatment to yeah. try to create that kind of DNA in the corporate environment. So. Not that you knew that. I don't think you knew this, but Coach Carol and I created a joint venture together. Oh, you did? So no, he, I didn't know. Yeah. So he's really switched on about how to create a high-performing culture. Mm-hmm. And I've been in the trenches for years helping people, individuals switch on. And so when you put the two of those together, high-performing culture and with high-performing individuals, doesn't that sound like a, a, a nice thing for right. know, a, a company that is yeah, amazing. Trying, trying to maybe change the world? And so we just launched last year. Um, fortunate enough to have uh, three clients with a total of, I just did this math, like 220,000 employees. Wow. Are you allowed to say who they are? Yeah. Is that well, yeah, for sure. Who are you, who, who are you working with? Yeah. So Boeing, mm-hmm. Microsoft, and um, Zenga. Wow. Those yeah. are good clients to have. Oh, it's, it's, it's awesome. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Well, earlier you said you wanted to stick a pin in, in motivation, and I think it's a good point to kind of delve into that a little bit further, particularly in the context of talking about coaching and motivating athletes. You know, in my personal experience, I've had coaches that have tried to motivate me and, and my teammates through positive reinforcement, and I've had other coaches who rely on negative reinforcement and a, sort of a more of a tearing down technique, both well-intentioned, mm-hmm. uh, both getting very different results. Um, and I'm interested in, in your perspective on, on how, you know, what the best strategies are to motivate athletes to 
peak performance. Yeah, cool. Because this word motivation, why I said put a pin in it, uh, because earlier uh, earlier in our conversations, because I, I almost all the athletes I work with are highly motivated. They're already motivated. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I, they've already got a life about them and a spark where they're trying to create or solve something or, or understand their capacity and potential. And so I, 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 it's going to sound weird. I don't understand motivation. Right. Well, motivation is sort of like willingness. Like you either you have it or you don't, and it's a self-generated thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm not in the business of motivation. I hands down, flat out, that's mm-hmm. not it. And but what are what are the techniques that, that successful coaches um, rely on to get results out of their athletes? So shaping behavior. Like maybe let's just talk about that for a minute. Is that um, if you haven't, this is how I think it works best. And this is anchoring the science, but putting it into a way that's not clunky, if you will, is that if you, if you have clarity about what behaviors or thinking that you want to hear or see from a person, and, and you guys can agree together what those are, and that's, that's important. What do, you, what do you want to see happen? And can you agree with that person what that will look like and get really clear about it? And then every time you see it or see getting closer to it, you reward it. And you, mm-hmm. you, you reinforce it and you call it out and you celebrate it. That's, that's what, I imagine, what I understand to be um, using good science and maintaining dignity uh, between the relationship. Mm-hmm. And the, the lonely work and the hard work is to have a clarity about what the behaviors are that you're wanting to work toward and then being very mindful of spotting them. Mm-hmm. So that's it. So it's 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 definitely that's um, how I, I right, see but shifting. Mm-hmm. But what are the drivers behind that behavioral change? Right, why, like why do they want to do something different? Mm-hmm. Pain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're back to pain. <laughs> We're back to pain. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you know, I talk a lot about accountability, right? If you're accountable to your teammates, or you're just a weekend warrior, you're accountable to your buddy that you told you, were, you, you was going to meet you at the gym, or you know, whatever it is, and that accountability can come in a positive form and a negative form. Like you're, you're accountable to this person. You, you enjoy doing it with somebody else and you have this social aspect to what you're doing, but you're going to get shit if you don't show up too. So there's a negative aspect to that as well. I love And it. both I, of these yeah. drive behavior. I think some of the best coaches uh, are really amazing at holding people to a high level of accountability. And they create that social bond and fabric mm-hmm. that allow that to take place. So I don't, I'm not sure like exactly where this conversation goes from this point, but I am nodding my head saying accountability is a powerful connector to stay consistent with behavior. I think where I've seen coaching to be really effective is where the coach can set the tone and the tenor, but then the team captain and the teammates shoulder that mantle. And then it becomes... They, they own it. They own it for themselves. And then it's about the union of this group of individuals who are collectively working towards a goal. They're not doing it because the coach says X, Y, or Z. It's, it becomes a group sort of self-generated mm. desire and motivation where then everything kind of clicks into, yep. into place. Yeah. When people own, own their stuff, it's so much more powerful than when they feel forced or convinced or manipulated or, you know, some sort of um, strategy used on them to get more out of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So hundred percent. And that's the art of coaching we're talking about. Right. You know, the science of behavioral change was what I was trying to articulate earlier. That's pretty well understood, but the art of it is, is how do you breathe life into an organization and to give clarity and cr- show the pathway for it? 
And um, the, the, the skill part of it for me is being able to be very clear about what behaviors we want to see and holding. It's so easy to see the mistake. It's so easy mm-hmm. to see when it's not right. But holding that line to uh, observing and recognizing when it is right or getting closer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, are the, what do you think the common mistakes are that most coaches make? Uh, frustration. You know, like oh, an athlete walking. This is the one that is painful for me. Like um, when an athlete walks away, not feeling as though he matters, mm-hmm. you know, and it's because the coach wants so much for the athlete and f- the coach is frustrated because he's run out of tools and skills and can't get the athlete to do what he wants to do. And then there's shame and an embarrassment or there's some sort of emotional attachment to not feeling good enough or mattering enough because the performance mm-hmm. wasn't up to standard. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that um, Coach Carroll's created a culture of back of the Seahawks is that um, that's not a that's not a strategy that's used or you know even tolerated. I haven't I haven't seen Coach Carroll raise his voice once. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, you know when we when we look to these superstar athletes, particularly you know NFL athletes or you know professional athletes in America, we project this kind of idealized life. You know that we imagine that these athletes are living and everything must be you know everything in their life must be great and everything is set up for them to succeed. But I think you know probably the reality is is quite different. You know just because somebody's a high paid athlete doesn't mean that you know they're getting along with their spouse or that they don't have, you know, their own kind of, you know, financial or professional issues or, you know, just the pure kind of, I think, loneliness that probably exists within the NFL, particularly with, you know, the rookie players who are used to a college environment and suddenly it becomes very different and more cutthroat. Yeah. So everybody's got their own framework about how they understand themselves and how the world works. And, it's it's as varied as as every man is on the mm-hmm. team like you know it's a, it's not like a one one come all experience once you enter the NFL and yeah you know there's there's real challenges there i mean I, I invite people to to watch a game a football game and mm-hmm. or any game action sports if you will and we see gladiators we see you know um let me say this differently we see uh, resemblance of gladiators because they've got this garb on, you know, this, this protective gear. But if you can look for the flesh underneath when the shirt comes up and you you remember that underneath this uniform, that there's a real person in there and they've got hopes and desires and uh, they've got feelings and thoughts and they've got family and, and they've got aspirations in their life and they're trying to do well that, um, and they're putting it on the line. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, that part of it is, um, I think, really important to remember mm-hmm. when we're watching and celebrating amazing feats of excellence. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So where does uh, where do the adventure sport athletes start coming in? The Red Bull athletes and the you know the Felixes and all these these you know crazy insane you know amazing athletes that you've yeah. had the good fortune to work with. It was it was this trajectory in my professional career. Um, it started in hockey, and then there were some. Um, uh, uh, traditional sports uh, that I was paying attention to and, and working with athletes. And mm-hmm. then it moved into um, some Olympic activities uh, with um, Olympians. And then um, one of the s- sports psychologists for the USOC, the United States Olympic Committee, introduced me to Dr. Andy Walsh at Red Bull, who was mm-hmm. building a high performance center and just getting the thing started ground level. 
and the two of us connected. So Dr. Walsh and myself connected, and you know, I grew up in in surfing, which is mm-hmm. now considered an action sport. Um, there wasn't such a label back then, <laughs> and um, and so did he. And so his his doctorate uh, degree is in uh, biomechanics and motor learning, and then so obviously mine's in psychology. So we we just had this natural appreciation for um, the science of um, excellence or sport uh, mm-hmm. performance. And he was just rounding out a team and putting it together. And I was fortunate enough to be part of um, something that was incredibly um, uh, meaningful uh, as, a, as a partnership with him. Um, we're now writing a book together. That's the, he's Oh, he's your co-author on the book. Yeah. Right. So, so you've had the opportunity to work with a whole variety of the Red Bull North America athletes. That's, and, yeah, uh, that's exactly right. And so it's, cool. a, it's a slice in there of many different types. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've got some threads in common. And that's kind of what we're going to celebrate in the book. Right, right, right. And, and, and more importantly, like, what can we all learn from that? People that go for it. Like, the, the most obvious is, seriously, if we get quiet with ourselves, are we going for it in our own life? And did we go for it today? Mm-hmm. Like, did it we? can't be that easy, though. It's totally that easy. It's a yeah. one-page book. Yeah, no, no, it's not a one-page book. Yeah, we got to tell some good stories. In yeah, there. yeah, but yeah. It, there is a decision to make. We have to make a decision mm-hmm. in our life, and there's lots of decisions to make. But a fundamental decision is: Are we oriented to go for it in life? Because we only have a certain amount of days and a certain amount of minutes that we get to live, and how do we want to live them? Like we've got to wrestle with that. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we're going to be just pulled around by all the distractions and nuances and expectations of how we're supposed to live. Some people aren't wired to go for it, though. Or do you believe everybody is? No, I think you're right. I, I think that there, we are wired with a particular um, brain chemistry. And we, we're, we come into the world with a unique um, DNA. And I don't care. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't care. You know, we can we, that. So some people maybe have a fear; uh, they're more sensitive to fear. I don't care. I might be more sensitive to distractions. It, whatever, like was, wherever we are today, we can still make the fundamental decisions. Uh, and this isn't me saying you should live it this way. This is like, how do you want to do you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that the the definition of going for it is a sliding scale. Exactly. It doesn't mean you know you quit your job tomorrow or you know no, what, you know jump no, off a building. No, or, no, 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 no. Yeah, and if. If you're, you know, if you've got a job that um, you're like, you're set, this is what you're doing. Like you've, you've already kind of, you're going down this path. You can be the absolute most, um, live a most meaningful life in any job. You can live the most uh, joy and celebration and excitement in any job. The, the environment does matter, but you create your experience in the environment. Mm-hmm. So it's nice when you can align your environment and the people you're around and, and the craft that you're creating, but you know, factory worker in Detroit, whatever it might be, like you can still find meaning um, in whatever you're doing. Right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, not everybody has the innate potential to be a LeBron James or some you know incredible gift, but I think everybody has a more actualized version of themselves that uh, yeah. that that could be better expressed in their life. And everybody has certain unique gifts that they have to offer. Some are subtle and some are extraordinary, but we all have something that makes us unique that we can contribute that gives our lives personal meaning. That's right. Right. So the journey is about how to better live uh, true to that. Amen to that. So going for it is your version of what that means. 
Amen to that. That's right. a, that's that's exactly what it means for yeah, me. Yeah, this would be a good place to end it, but I can't let you off the hook without hearing the Felix story. <laughs> it's well documented. It's easy to yeah. find on on Google, uh, but I, I got to hear it from you firsthand because it's so sure. amazing. Uh, yeah, what a, what a uh, just a gift for me to be part of that journey mm-hmm. um, with a group of people that were um, top of the game. You know, there's some real amazing people in the aerospace industry that were part of this, uh, very creative minds, very skilled people that were part of that team. Um, and and yeah. for people that are listening that are that are unclear, we're talking about Felix Baumgartner and the Stratos mission where he yeah. jumped from this capsule that was, how high up was it? Really high. <laughs> <laughs> he was basically in space. In stratosphere. Yeah. yeah. And so this was the Red Bull Everybody Stratos Everybody saw it. There's no one listening who didn't watch that. No. Incredible video. Yeah. It was, it was an amazing journey. And, you know, I think the, the, the most important takeaways maybe for this conversation is that what a joy it is to be part of a group that is highly inspired and switched on and trying to do mm-hmm. something that is um, a game changer. Like this, they can actually shift the needle. And it was, uh, and it was honored to, an honor to be part of that. And the essence of the story is that, and this is all, again, well-documented, is that um, I think it was about halfway through the project, mm-hmm. Felix put up his hand and said, hey, um, I need some help. And I'm, I'm really unsettled in this environment, this, this um, suit that I have to be in for five and a half, six and a half hours. And I just can't spend any time in it without mm-hmm. you know, like feeling claustrophobic. It's a full-on spacesuit. That's what it is. Yeah. How yeah. much did it weigh? Oh, I don't know. I don't know the exact amount. You of got it. in it though. I you did. lived in it for. Oh. You went and had your own experience with oh, it, right? You did your homework. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good for you. Yeah. 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 That was part of the. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it was part of the the, the the science team saying no. I think it'd be good for you to feel what it feels like and and to hear the sounds that are in it and when it's actually. Um, um, inflated, uh, I think there's a better word for it, a more technical word, but when there's compression in the suit, how challenging it is to actually move. And so they walked me through that experience to have a deeper understanding of what Felix was, mm-hmm. some of what Felix was He was, was essentially having panic attacks. And he, was, he, was feeling, he was having severe claustrophobia. Right. And what, what does that mean? Like that his mind was not settled in the present moment and highly anxious. And this is somebody who has an acute ability to center his mind because, you know, it's not like Stratos was his first, you know, spin around the merry-go-round. He's been doing amazing things for a long time. Right. He was a um, very accomplished base jumper. Mm -hmm. And so he's jumped into the deepest caves and the the lowest buildings and the highest buildings. And, you know, he jumped off the arms of Jesus down in Brazil and, and, and in Rio. So, yeah, he's very highly skilled at what he does. And you know, he put his hand up and said, I just, I, I don't have the t- skills I need to be able to manage my mind in this environment. And what, what an amazing thing to do. Mm. I, I'm scared. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It takes a lot of courage to do that. I mean, I think that the easy way out would have been to, you know, spin some yarn about some other reason why he couldn't do it or point his finger at somebody else and saying, you're not doing your job or create some kind of an excuse to mask the fear, but right. to be able to raise your hand and say that, that, that takes balls. Oh yeah. That's well, he's certainly got some. Yeah. He's got, he's got <laughs> uh-huh. so, um, it was, yeah, but that kind of balls, those are different kind of balls, you know, yeah. emotional balls mm. or, or the, the balls to be emotionally vulnerable are, are, I would think 
often at odds with the kind of balls that that allow people to you know combat fear and do extraordinary things. Yeah, I think that they're actually closer. That's a closer line than we think. But much of it is often em, embraced in the bravado of being you know tough or macho or mm. you know. Um, it, which is just a mask. It, oh yeah, it told, it's a, told, and told it us. masks fear and all these other kind of things that that you know basically vulnerability is a threat to. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, he did it and he lived it and he put his hand up and he said, um, you know, let's get some work on, on this. And mm-hmm. um, that's it. I mean, so it just so applied. So you get the call, the, the, the Red Bull phone rings in your yeah. office. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is. Uh, Send the jet. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Walsh, uh, mm-hmm. Andy Walsh called and said, I think I got a project for you. Mm. <laughs> and so. Um, yeah, what a real challenge, both for me and for him and for, for the team to go through this part of their phase. And, you know, he he, um, he did it. He, he faced his fear head on. Um, he put in the work uh, to be completely vulnerable and to develop skills from that point. And we just did good science. We applied good science um, in an environment that with a person that was willing and a highly engaged team of very smart individuals. Um, but piecing together what was going left on him and, and correcting that course. I mean, you know, how did you identify what the trigger was and then correct that? Well, I just asked the question, you know, what's going on mm-hmm. for you? <laughs> it was easy as that. Yeah, Come it's, on. It's that simple. Yeah, it's the just, special sauce here. Yeah. So, no, the special sauce is good science. And so you build a rapport, connect, understand, and then um, ap- apply an intervention that has been well tested. Cause this is, this is a very high stakes environment. So, you know, winging some creative process to see if it works with somebody that's going to risk their life. That's no, not, you that's, can't do that. no, no, no. So, um, we applied, um, very well tested protocols for, uh, this, uh, flooding is called is the, the approach or otherwise known as systematic desensitization. And really the objective was to extinguish the fear, not just manage it, but to extinguish it. And he did the work. And, um, you know, uh, he, he put it in and, and the team said, uh, f- f- Mike, you know, like success before we launch is that he needs to be in his suit for an extended period of time and be a hundred percent capacity before he, we move forward. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, a very short time later, he was, he cracked it. How long, I mean, how long was the whole process from crisis to resolution? I don't know when the crisis initially began, but... Um, or from when you got involved. Well, I was fortunate enough to stay connected to it um, intimately at some points and from a distance from other points uh, through its inception. So it was a, a, a continued four years. But the work mm-hmm. we did was brief and intense and short. Mm-hmm. And it was the order of a couple of days. Mm-hmm. And were you on site when he made the jump? Mm, in mission control. It was, uh, yeah. it was awesome. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That was great. That had to be unbelievable. Oh. Yeah, and to just to just walk me through what it felt like to put the suit on and kind of be—you were in the capsule, right? And kind of stood on the ledge. I mean, obviously, trying to imagine what it would be, what it would feel like to be that high up. Um, it's exactly what you would imagine. It's uh, how do you describe it? Um, it's a very contained environment that uh, has a particular weight and feel and sound inside of it. So it's like there's an echo chamber inside of it, mm-hmm. and then. Um, you actually need to breathe in um, the right mixture of oxygen to be able to to live inside of it because 
you know, there's a, um, a unit that is pumping in that oxygen. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's a weight, there's a sound, there's a reliance on the external world for survival. And then going through the protocols, um, being able to feel what it feels like to have this suit actually pressurized. That was the word I was looking for earlier. Um, it feels like you're inside. It's like, I don't know what it is, like 2.2 pounds of pressure per, hmm. you know, it's, it's like I broke an instant sweat trying to, trying to move myself uh, in the suit. Right. Like it, it's, it was, it's very challenging. He made it look super simple and these guys in spacesuits make it look simple. And it is, um, it requires a lot of work to mm-hmm. move that suit. Interesting. Yeah. And I mean, how long was he in it? I mean, uh, I think uh, the actual event he was in it for, I'm, I'm going to, I don't know, but five, six hours, like right. there's a pre-breathing process. Right, 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 there's right. a sitting around, there's, you know, the, the number I keep remembering was five or six hours. Right. I'm sure it was that. <laughs> <laughs> so now when you watch, the, watch movies with guys in spacesuits, you're like, ah, that's not what it's like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's hard. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, let's wrap it up, but it, it, I want to uh, kind of end it on, um, you know, something that maybe you could, uh, you know, give away to the listeners. You gave those great tips of, you know, how to start your day, but if there's any other thing that they could kind of incorporate into their day to, you know, lean into this idea of, of mindfulness and, and presence, you know, whether that contributes to them as an athlete or just as a human being. Sure. Yeah. What a great, what a great kind of way to, to wrap this investing in, um, breathing training is it's a it's a worthwhile cause, and so it does a couple of things. Is that if you invest in this 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 even kind of com, um, mechanical breathing work, um, it's it's the tip of the arrow in some respects. It's the entire thing if you follow Zen tradition of mindfulness training. Mm. And so my thought is just to begin. And how do you begin? Um, figure out what a deep breath looks like for you, and it's usually it starts down in the deep abdominal. Uh, in through the nose, let your stomach pop out, fill up your chest as the second kind of component to it, feel some tension in the top of your chest, and then just let it all go and enjoy the exhale. And each breath, I don't know, it's about 10 seconds, 12 seconds, somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, but if, if someone wanted to just begin this process, what I would suggest is uh, pick a number. And the, what I do with athletes is 12. And so we begin with 12 breaths and just commit to doing 12 breaths in a row um, every day and commit to each breath as if your mother's or loved one's life depended on you being fully committed to that breath. Mm. And so it's, that's a great way to begin uh, the process of what some people are going to call mindfulness training or meditation. But you know? f- for the uninitiated, when you say, you know, commit to the breath, like what does that actually mean? It just means like, let your mind be connected to that as opposed to your laundry or if you're mm. questioning, if you're doing it right or you know, the, the, the work that you've got to get to or whatever. So you're just committing to that breath. What does that mean? For me, sometimes um, I'm just feeling the way it feels for my stomach to move or my chest to move or the way the, the, um, the sensations feel as the air leaves my nostrils. Like, that's it, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of that simple. You can do it anytime, anywhere. Right. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, cool. And I found that p- people are using their car as a great way to, you know, um, kind of find time that's naturally somewhat quiet. And so mindfulness training in the cars, not while they're driving, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, like get there a few minutes before or um, after a meeting or whatever, and just drop in and do it, do the work there. 
I love it. Yeah, cool. Cool, man. Thank you for being interested in and having this. Oh, are you kidding, man? This is fascinating. I yeah. go all day with you. You yeah, know, it right. was really cool, man. I really appreciate and, it. And, and you didn't break a sweat. No, I didn't. No, I we, we, we didn't. I might we, be sweating my armpits. Might no, we didn't turn the, We didn't turn the light on you. We'll have to do that some yeah. other time. Yeah. Next time, man. Well, yeah. I know you have a, a book coming out. We're not quite sure exactly when, right? right. You, don't, you have a title yet? Yeah, I've got a title, but I'm, it's under contract, so I can't uh, release it yet. It's all shrouded in secrecy. I know. Yeah. Um, but hopefully you'll come back and, and tell us about it when the book is coming out. I would love to do that. Right? Yeah, thank you. Cool. You feel good? Did we do it? We did it. Yeah. yeah. What do I owe you for the session? Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't think we did one. So <laughs> we didn't? We just had a good I conversation. Yeah. yeah. We'll do another one. All right. Cool, man. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, if you're digging on Michael and you want to connect with him, the best way to do that is your website, michaelgervais.com. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think that I'm finding a great engagement on social. So mm-hmm. Twitter, yeah. Michael Gervais. That's it. Yeah. G-E-R-V-A-I-S. The well S is silent. Yeah, yes. Yes. How's that work? I don't know. That's just the you way know. my parents said it. <laughs> yeah. No, it's the French roots. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, are uh, any are you on Facebook and the other places too, or is Twitter the main deal? Yeah, Twitter and Instagram. Those mm-hmm. two. Cool. It's, yeah. My name. Right on, man. Cool. Thank you very Thanks much. Thanks again. Yeah. Cool. Peace. Plants. Okay, you guys. That's it. We did it. It's over. I hope you enjoyed Dr. Gervais. Personally, I find. Him and his specialty, fascinating. I could have talked to him all day. And a real quick note, we did not get into one super fascinating aspect of his practice, which is the state-of-the-art brain mapping that he does and the results of which he says help him assess and quantify mental aspects of performance like focus and decision speed and reaction time and stress regulation. Uh, I'm hoping... uh, that uh, maybe I can go back and interview him later about this. What's super cool is that he kind of offhandedly uh, offered to let me come in and, and, and he was going to brain map me. So if he meant what he says and he'll let me go back in, I'd love to do that. And maybe I could report back to you guys on the podcast, have him back on again, and we could talk about this in more depth. Plus, he's got a book coming out uh, at some point. I don't know exactly when, but that's another reason to have him on again. If you guys are interested in hearing more from him, I know that I am. Uh, the other day, we did our first Q&A, Ask Me Anything episode. What did you guys think? Uh, you want me to do it again? Did you like it? I thought it went pretty well. Uh, if we're going to continue to do it and you want to have your question answered, send me your question to findingultra at gmail.com. Or you can tweet or Facebook them and tag it. Hashtag AskRRP. I've got a script running uh, that's going to capture all the tweets with that hashtag so I can keep track of it. Um, If you are joining me on this 30-day iPhone detox, this experimentation in uh, increased mindfulness and presence, please keep me and everyone posted uh, on how it's going by tagging your social media shares during designated hours, of course, with uh, hashtag iDetox. It's going pretty well for me. I'm kind of on the other side of the painful part of it, and I've noticed a significant enhancement in... Um, my interactions with other, with other human beings. That's the biggest impact. Um, I'm not out of the woods yet, but uh, so far, so good. Uh, and, and I'll report back uh, maybe in the next Q&A episode about how it's all panning out for me. Okay. Again, it's the holiday season. 
It's the last minute. What are you going to get for people, for yourself? Well, rather than buy a bunch of trashy nonsense that you're going to throw out right away, why don't you buy something that can actually improve your life or give it as a gift to somebody to enhance their life experience? Towards that end, I've got a couple online courses you might be interested in checking out. Specific to today's conversation with Dr. Gervais, you might want to look at The Art of Living with Purpose. Uh, It's on mindbodygreen.com. It's all about increasing mindfulness, increasing that connection with yourself, developing self-understanding and self-knowledge so that you can then set the right goal for yourself and set about creating an infrastructure and a map towards achieving that goal. It's a couple hours of streaming video content. It's got an online community, downloadable tools, blah, blah, blah. It's good stuff. It's at mindbodygreen.com along with my other course, The Ultimate Guide to Plant-Based Nutrition. Similar kind of thing. Just go to mindbodygreen.com, click on video courses uh, on the menu at the top of the homepage, and you can find out more about that. Go to ritual.com for all your plant power necessities. We've got a whole bunch of new cool t-shirt designs. Uh, We've got nutritional products. We've got our meditation program, our digital e-cookbook. You guys know about that stuff, so go there to check that stuff out And what is left? Give us a a review on iTunes. Uh, If you want to access the earlier episodes of the show, as you know, iTunes only lists the most recent 50. They're all available if you get my free app, free iOS app in the iTunes app store. Just uh, type in Rich Roll in the search window in the iTunes app store. It'll pop right up. It's totally free. Easily access every single episode of the podcast for free. It's got all the show notes and the blog posts and the pictures of the guests and all that good stuff. Uh, Thanks so much, you guys. Continue to support the show by telling your friends, using the Amazon banner ad, all that good stuff. Keep Instagramming how you enjoy the show. I love it. And happy holidays to all of you guys. I hope you guys are having a wonderful, fantastic, enjoyable, beautiful, heartwarming, and lovely holiday season. And I'll catch you guys next week. Peace. Plants. Yeah.